through the book of Ephesians here at Cornerstone over the last couple of months. And today, at the end of the, the end of the year, and a special occasion today where we have a baptism, uh, I thought I'd do something a little bit different, and I'd do a topical talk uh, on baptism. Now, in some ways, this can be a bit of a controversial thing, I know. Uh, and sadly, it can be something that can really divide people. Um, but can I just say that the heart of the Christian faith, whether no matter what position you take on this, is the glorious truth of the gospel, which we've just been singing about. And that is that, the Lord, that God himself has come to earth in his son. And that by trusting in him, we are forgiven and we receive the free gift of eternal life. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful, glorious truth of infinite praise to God? Now, I realize that I recognize that many of us will come from different church backgrounds. And can I again, can I just say there's actually more similarities if you've come from a Protestant church, whether it be Baptist or Brethren or Presbyterian or Anglican. Uh, there's more that we have in common than we actually have apart. You'll notice that whether you be Baptist or Presbyterian, whatever, um, normally at birth, there is something to uh, symbolize or recognize the special gift that children are. A lot of Baptist churches will dedicate their children. Uh, And in many ways, what you'll see this morning, if I can be a bit cheeky, is a wet dedication. Uh, And in the same way that a lot of Baptist churches will make a big deal of having uh, baptism later on in life, if I can be also a little bit cheeky, what we do is a dry baptism with a profession of faith. Uh, it's just really the question of when should the sign of water and of God's promises be applied to the child? That's what we're going to look at this morning from God's word. So I'm going to read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to get us started. And we're going to be doing a little bit of Bible flipping today because it is uh, a topical talk. Um, but let me read to us from God's word. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. 
No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Well, it seems like I've saved my most controversial sermon for the end of the year. Uh, I thought I'd do a topical talk today on the question of baptism, and in particular, whether the Lord wants the children of believers to also be baptised. Again, I realise, as I said before, not everyone will agree with everything that I have to say this morning. And what's more? Oh, sorry, Anissa's just pointing out there's this corner pebble on at the back. So if you've got young children, if you'd like to go with Sarah and Anissa, and the kids will go out now. Great. Seems a little bit odd. The children have to go out when I'm talking about children, where they should be baptised, but that's okay. I realise that uh, brothers and sisters in Christ um, will disagree with me this morning. And can I say, I've actually been really nervous about this talk because they're brothers and sisters in Christ whom I love (laughs) and I greatly respect. But I'm hoping that even if you disagree, that you'll still find that what I have to say is edifying and helpful and understanding why other Christians take this particular view and they do it out of biblical conviction, not out of sort of following some kind of dodgy church tradition. So let's pray before we look at God's word and let's humble our hearts before God and and ask that he would increase our understanding and our love for him, even when we disagree. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can meet together as your people. What a joy it is, Lord, to worship you, the true and living God, the one who broke into our world and came to earth as a little baby in a manger, in a feed trough, the most humble circumstances of all. Lord, as we look at your word now, we pray for all of us that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would... Give us a deeper knowledge of your love for us and of your will and of your character, of your purposes and plans. And Lord, be with me too, that I would be faithful to your word and I would speak it in a loving and gracious way. And Lord, we pray all of these things, asking for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think one of the most important questions that we have to ask ourselves when we come to this question of baptism is, What is the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Because obviously the New Testament is a fulfilment of the Old. And in many ways you don't really understand what the New Testament is about until you can see it in relation to the Old Testament. I like to think of it like a colouring in book. The Old Testament is like the outline that you'll see in children's colouring in books. And the New Testament is the colour that fills it all in. The Old Testament is like the outline. The New Testament is the fulfilment. It shows. Now, I'll give you an example. We celebrate the Lord's Supper here regularly, uh, once a month. The Lord's Supper is clearly, I think, a fulfilment of the Passover. We understand what the Lord's Supper means and all of its richness by understanding what the Passover first meant that God's angel of wrath would pass over everyone that had the blood of a lamb 
on the doorframe of their house. And in the same way, we believe when we celebrate the Lord's Supper that those that trust in the blood of the Lamb that's placed upon the household of their faith, so too God's angel of wrath, his judgment, passes over. We see this actually explicitly stated in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So you can see how there is promise and then there is fulfillment. And you only see the richness of that when you understand the old in relation to the new. And at the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus makes this connection again explicit when he explains how the Passover meal finds its meaning and its fulfillment in his own death. As he says, this is the blood of the new covenant that is shed for you in my blood. So no longer do we celebrate the Passover, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So the question is, how might the Old Testament help us to understand the meaning of baptism? What was the sign in the Old Testament of which baptism is the sign or the fulfillment of that sign in the New? Well, as we saw from Genesis 17, the Old Testament sign of God's covenant is circumcision. And it wasn't so much a public declaration of a person's faith. In fact, that would be a bit odd wouldn't it? Because it's on the most private part of a person's body. Circumcision was a sign, rather, of God's covenant. It was a sign of God's promises. In fact, you could even say that circumcision was a sign of God's faith, of what he was going to do for his, to save his people. That one day, the Lord was going to come as the promised Messiah, and he was going to save his people from their sins. And that's why that part, if you've ever thought about this, of Abraham's anatomy, the part chosen for procreation, was nicked with the sign of the covenant. Because God said that from his seed, one day he would come to earth. He would come to earth as a real man, as Genesis 3.15 says, the serpent crusher who would crush the head of the snake. That's a very powerful sign, isn't it, of God's covenant, of his promise. That's why genealogies in the Old Testament are so, so important. Because you're waiting for this serpent crusher to come. You're waiting for the Messiah to appear. Now, in this sense, the covenant of circumcision was, let me put this very accurately as as I can, a sign of God's dedication to his people. It was actually an act of dedication. Not necessarily from, you know, man up, but from God down. It was a sign that he was going to be faithful to his promises, you see. Another promise in the Old Covenant as to what would happen when the Messiah gloriously arrived is in Ezekiel chapter 36. Now, I've printed this out for you on your sermon outlines so that you can refer to it quickly. And for many of you, this will be one of the most challenging things you read this morning because this is what God says when he, when he comes in the new covenant, this is what the sign will look like. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, integral to the promise of the new covenant then is not only receiving a a new heart of God's spirit being put within us, but this sign of sprinkling which represents purification or cleansing of being sprinkled with clean water as a sign of God's promise to forgive us and to renew us from within. But once again, now here's the nub of the question, isn't it? Should this covenant sign of the new covenant also include believers, obviously it does, but also their children? How does God relate to us and to our families? That's the question. Now, I know that many people think that it's only for those that confess their faith because that's what we often see occur in the Gospels. But we have to remember the unique nature of the Gospels, that like Abraham, he was the first generation of believers. What we find from church history, interestingly, and from the pages of the New Testament, is lots of indications that children were included as members of the covenant. In fact, my former pastor or senior minister used to say, the Presbyterian Church doesn't believe in infant baptism. What we believe in is covenant baptism. The question is, who is a member of the covenant? Because like circumcision, it was a sign of the Lord's dedication to us, do you see? Which makes sense when you think about it, because why would God be less gracious in the new covenant than he was in the old? If children were included as part of the covenant community in the old, why would they stop being included in the new? Now, if you look at your sermon outlines, you'll see that I've listed seven biblical reasons as to why I think the Bible teaches that the children of believers should be baptised. Once again, uh, can I just emphasise that what I think the Bible says the sign of baptism means, because this is what covenant baptism means and it's this and this is again a radical redefinition for many that you'll be somewhat shocked by we don't think that it's a sign of someone's faith it's a sign of God's faith of God's dedication to his people do you see so we're operating on two very different definitions of what it means so let me give you a couple of examples Take, for instance, what happens in Acts chapter 2. Remember there on the day of Pentecost, Peter is asked by all the Jews who have gathered in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, what must we do to be saved, they ask. And in response, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then he says something really interesting. He immediately goes on to say, the promise is for you and for your children, as well as for those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I think what he's saying there is not just for you Jews, but also for Jews in the diaspora spread throughout the world and Gentiles. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves at this point, how do you think, the Jewish people who first heard those words would have understood what Peter meant. 
when they heard that the promise is for them and for their children, would they have concluded that, well, maybe they should wait till they're old enough to choose for themselves? Or would they have said, oh, so children are still members of God's covenant? I personally think the latter is more likely. It's not definitive, but I think it is likely because of what the rest of the book of Acts goes on to say. In chapter 11 and chapter 16, what we find is whole households are baptised whenever one of the parents comes to believe in Jesus. The whole family follows. Now, I know someone would argue, but yeah, where does it say that children or babies even were included, right? But can I say with respect, that's actually the wrong question to ask. Because if God was dedicated to covenant children in the Old Testament for 2,000 years, what you need to find now in the New Testament is a verse which says they're now excluded, you see? We really need a passage which says something like, but everyone who was not old enough to make a decision for themselves at that time was excluded. But instead what we find is that no one is left out because of their age. Why? Because God is continuing to relate to people in a covenantal way. Like in Genesis 17, whole households continue to be included in his plan. Now, another example of this covenant principle being in operation is found in the passage which I just read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For me, personally, this is one of the verses which I find to be the most convincing or compelling. One of the things that makes this particular passage so extraordinary is that it says that the Israelites in the Old Testament actually participated in both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it was the Lord's Supper, not just in a prefiguring way, but that they drank spiritual drink and ate spiritual food, which was Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's mind-blowing. But Paul says this in verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then he goes on to say, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. By the way, this passage, I think, tells us something very, very important. And that is, sadly, tragically, just because you've had the Lord's Supper or been baptised, whether or not as a child or as an adult, doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. For many people in the Old Covenant experienced both of those blessings, but their bodies were scattered over the desert. And sadly, don't we know of friends, maybe even family like that? that worshipped here with us at church, were part of our number, and then were not. They were baptised. They participated in the Lord's Supper with us. And yet they don't continue on. Whether it's through grumbling, idolatry, testing the Lord, or sexual immorality, their bodies are scattered through 
the wilderness. And sadly, that kind of thing happens in the Old Covenant and it happens also in the New Covenant. How many people participate or partake of the Lord's Supper being baptised in an adult and sadly later fall away? Tragically, as I said, I think we all know people like that. But the question we need to ask ourselves right now is this. How many Israelites were baptised into Moses? Well, the answer is pretty clearly all of them. It's not like those who were old enough to have a profession of faith passed through the Red Sea and then their parents said, well, look, you just wait over there and when you're old enough to make a decision for yourself, you can be baptised too and you can pass through the Red Sea and come into the Promised Land. That's not what happened. They were all baptised into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. Now, just because God was dedicated to them doesn't mean, sadly, that everybody who was baptised into Moses was dedicated to him. For, as we just read, many of their bodies were scattered in the desert. But it goes to show how gracious God is. He saves, you know, temporally at least, the Israelites in a way that many of them reject. So often we experience so many new covenant blessings and sadly in our sinful rebellion we reject them. It's tragic. Now that being the case, it's really quite significant that the New Testament, as I said before, teaches that circumcision has now been replaced by baptism. For baptism is the sign of God's new covenant promise of being dedicated to us. If you turn over to Colossians chapter 2 for a minute um, with me, I'll show you what I mean. Colossians chapter 2, because now that Christ has come, the sign of the covenant has changed. We no longer practice the Passover. We have the Lord's Supper. We no longer practice circumcision. We now have baptism. We read this from verse 11. In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So you can see quite clearly here, the Apostle Paul is saying, Passover, Lord's Supper, circumcision, baptism. Both covenant signs are finding their fulfilment in Christ. And the promise here is God's promise, his faith, a sign of his dedication to us. Now, I know we're moving pretty quickly, but let me just uh, mention a few more things, which I think by way, once you know this framework, you'll see that all the, uh, these other passages start to go, oh, wow, this covenantal framework is being emphasized and confirmed throughout the rest of the New Testament. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 have you ever noticed that the children of believing parents, even one believing parents, are said to be holy? That is, in one way, they are set apart to God in a way that the children of unbelieving parents are not. 
which is a wonderful, I think, encouragement to parents because it shows that there are covenant blessings for the precious little ones whom the Lord has given to us. In fact, I was talking to Jacques and Nika last week and they were just saying how blessed they were to be raised in a Christian family. How blessed it was to be able to be raised in a Christian church, to be really to have a spiritual village around them and how what a blessing and encouragement that that was. And that as they were given a little gift in their son, they thought that's what they want for him. They want that same covenant blessing that they had grown up with. Now, why do we say that? Because if you have got believing parents, then you're going to hear about Jesus from the very get-go. In fact, they're going to be praying for you from even before you're born, which is amazing. And can I just say, never underestimate too when God can regenerate a child and bring them to saving faith. How old do you think is too young to be born again? One year old? One month old? Well, what about even in the womb? Can a child actually have saving faith in the womb? Now, you might think, well, Mark, how could they possibly hear? How could they possibly understand? John the Baptist did. When Elizabeth went to meet Mary, the child in her womb leapt for joy (laughs) in utero because he recognised the Messiah in another womb. (laughs) That's the power of God's spirit. Never, ever underestimate, friends, how God's spirit can be at work in someone's heart and life. But again, baptism is not so much a sign, I think, of our faith, but of God's faith. You see, it's a sign of his dedication to us. It's saying to every Christian parent, like Jackson and Nicka this morning, I'm for you. I love you and your child. Never doubt that. It's a beautiful thing. They're the recipients of our prayers and they're exposed to all of these incredible spiritual benefits which look, quite frankly, children in unbelieving homes just are not. Now, don't get me wrong. Just because you've been raised in a Christian family doesn't mean that you're automatically saved, right? As we've just read, many of the Israelites' bodies were scattered in the desert, okay? But having Christian parents means that you're going to be exposed to the influence of the gospel, which the children of unbelieving parents simply are not. They're not going to, you're, not, you're, going to, you're going to hear about Jesus, whether you like it or not. You're going to hear about Jesus from the very beginning. And can I just say, having had six children ourselves, our prayer has always been that they would never know a day where they didn't know Christ. I don't want this extravagant testimony of them getting up here, which is very powerful, I know, and very emotionally moving, but it's something I, quite frankly, as a parent, do not want. And that is that child that gets up and says, I was so wayward, I went off, I didn't believe, I did all these things, now I've come back. No. I want them to grow up going, I always knew I was loved by Christ, I always knew I was forgiven by him, and I praise God that there was never a day where I didn't know him. How boring. To the glory of God. (laughs) Thank you. Because why waste your life sowing your wild oats when you could be reaping a harvest? Okay. But having Christian parents obviously means that you're going to be greatly blessed. 
have a, if you're taking notes, maybe you want to jot down this passage because this will make even more sense to you. Psalm 103 verse 17. It says this, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Isn't that a beautiful promise? From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Again, it doesn't mean you're automatically saved, but my goodness, you will be blessed because you're exposed to righteousness and truth and grace like unbelieving families are not. Now, that said, do you remember, for those that have been with us the last couple of weeks, what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 as to why children should obey their parents? Oh, the children are out at the moment, but this would be a really good one to remind them of. <laughs> children, even the children that are here, why should you obey your parents? Well, not only is it right, the Bible says, not only is it because it has a promise that you may live long on this earth, but why? Because you are in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That is, it assumes that you have a covenant relationship with God. You are holy. You've been set apart. So your obedience to your parents is actually your, a reflection of your obedience to Christ. Not only that, but it's backed up with a connection which God himself says in the fifth commandment. And again, notice the link between the new covenant and the old covenant here. Because notice that they're connected. God says in the fifth commandment, which the Apostle Paul applies, applies directly to us in the new, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And it's also, now, can I just say, you've got to take this really seriously because it's why our children can't say, well, you know, mum and dad, I know you've given me this instruction, but maybe later on when I become a Christian, I'll think about it. They don't say that, do they? None of us would accept that kind of attitude or statement. That's because children have a responsibility to obey their parents before God. They're told to honour their mother and father in the Lord. Now, my final point then makes complete and perfect sense if you keep in mind everything else we've just been seeing. And that is Jesus himself says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Indeed, he goes even further and he says that unless you become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I realise that if you view that verse on its own, then it's not a very compelling reason to include children in Christian baptism. But if you place it along everything else that we've been looking at, it's actually quite significant, isn't it? Because God is relating to us covenantally. And once again, it's a powerful and pertinent reminder that children of the covenant are not excluded due to their age. The disciples wanted to do that. Jesus said, no. Jesus said, you have to become like that. In fact, now with all that said, what difference does it make if we baptise our children or not? Here's where the rubber really hits the road, doesn't it? Can I suggest to you this morning, I think there are three main benefits for baptising your children. The first, and I think this is probably for me the most important, is that it brings glory to God. 
because it takes the focus away from ourselves and to God. You see, as I've been trying to explain, baptism is a sign of God's dedication to us. A wet dedication, but a dedication nonetheless. Children are a beautiful gift from God. And by baptising them, what we're doing is we're actually acknowledging that God is dedicated to them. And in a way too, we're rededicating them back to God. In fact, as we'll look at just a moment, when we see a baptism, no matter if it's an adult or if it's a child, we're actually all benefiting from it. It's a covenant renewal ceremony for the people of God, not just for the family. We're expressing our faith as parents that the Lord will pour out his grace upon them so that they would know the riches of his mercy and of his love. And can I just say too, the beautiful thing I think about covenant baptism is it says that God loves us before we love him. That God is faithful to us before we even respond in faith. And that's humbling. All of which gives glory to God. Because when we baptise our children, we're expressing both our thankfulness to God for them, but also for his love and our complete and utter dependence on him. Okay, that leads us to the second benefit. And that is being baptised as a child is a wonderful comfort as well as warning to our children as they grow up. It's a comfort because they can see that God first loved them before, before they chose to love him, that he'd reached out to them before they reached out to him. And you might go, well, how do they know that? Because there's children here that have been baptised and they're going to see it again today and be reminded of their own baptism. It's a sign that keeps on giving. And in this sense, as I said before, Protestant baptism in a Presbyterian church at least, I know other churches will differ on this, but in a Presbyterian Reformed church, baptism is really a form of a wet dedication back to God of what he has first given to us. Except that it also includes the covenant sign of water as prophesied in passages such as Ezekiel 36. And as if that has not been as controversial enough, I'm going to dip my toes into the troubled waters, pun intended, of the mode. And at some point, you have to ask yourself, when is Ezekiel 36 fulfilled? Is it a new covenant promise? Then I'll just leave this out to you. I'm just wondering when you're going to do the sprinkling thing. I'll leave that with you. The sign of baptism, though, also serves as a warning in that it says to the person who has been baptised that they should, if they should ever walk away from God, your baptism is still effective as a sign of your judgment. You see, we oftentimes think that baptism is only a sign of God's promise to save. It's not. That water is symbolising both salvation and judgment. If you respond to God in faith, he will wash away all of your sin. If you reject him with unbelief, it will also work as a sign that you'll be drowned. That's how powerful a sign it is. It's just like the flood of Noah's day that Peter links explicitly in 1 Peter 3. Remember this passage? If you're in the ark of Christ, you're safe. But if you ever decide to leave the boat... You ever decide to reject Christ and his promises of salvation? 
All that's left for you is the flood. You're either in the ark with the water spraying off over the top, sprinkling you, or you're being fully submerged in judgment. Now, the final benefit I think we experience when we baptise our children, though, is this. It changes the way we actually function as parents. Now, you might think, what does he mean? Well, when we baptise our children as infants, what we're really doing is we're making a solemn pledge before God that we're going to raise them as disciples. They might not be able to explain or articulate every aspect of penal substitutionary atonement from the very beginning, but as they grow, as they continue to develop, as they more fully learn and understand, as we pray with them and teach them to obey everything Jesus is commanding them to do, yes, we're fulfilling the Great Commission. Let me explain. In my first congregation in Outback, New South Wales, um, when I got there, hardly anyone was baptising their children anymore. And one of the young guys in my church uh, came to me during the week one day uh, and he said to me, you know, we, we just want to do what the Bible says. We'd like you to dedicate our child without water. Um, and so we had a big, long conversation and I said to him, oh, just wondering where the chapter and verse is where it talks about in the New Testament, dedication without water. I said, oh, I'll get back to you on that. After looking at the scriptures for a long time and talking with them about it, they decided to go away and pray about it. Because I said to him, you know, do you pray with your child? Yeah, I, we, of course we do, Mark. We've prayed for them before they were born. Do you teach them to obey everything that Jesus... Of course we do, Mark. We're Christian parents. Oh, so when it comes to the Great Commission, you just don't want to give them the sign of baptism. Which is important, friends, because notice the logical order. Go therefore into the, all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptising them, first of all, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. So, why would we do the latter and forego the former? Why would we teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded, but not obey the very first thing that Jesus commanded? Why would we neglect the sign? Well, Less than a week later, this um, young man came back to me and he said that he and his wife had changed their mind. They'd had one daughter, I think that was about three, and one daughter that was one. And he said oh, he wanted to now get them both baptised. And to tell you the truth, I was really shocked. I was surprised. I said, what changed your mind? And he said, well, it was, you know, what you said about whether or not we saw them as disciples or as unbelievers was pretty challenging. Because I said to him, if you take this seriously, you're going to be raising them as little disciples until such a time as they decide to reject it. The other side is you'll be really, if I can put it like this, raising them as little pagans until they're ready to accept it. He thought, well, that's pretty challenging. But there was something else that happened, Mark, that really changed my mind. We've become convinced that even though we're now relating to them as Christian parents, they too are disciples. You see, what happened is that this particular man came home one day from work. He was a tractor driver on one of the really big cotton farms. And he had a splitting headache. And his, his little daughter said to him, what's wrong, Dad? Because he was sitting on the couch holding his head. And he goes, oh, I've got a splitting headache. I'm, I just need to have some quiet time here. And uh, she said, oh, medicine? 
And he's like, yeah, look, I've taken some Panadol, but if I, if I can just sit and have a moment's peace and, and, uh, and just quiet, I'm hoping it'll go away. And she said, oh, we should pray. How old does somebody need to be when they come to faith? When they see that praying to the living God of the universe is what we most desperately need of all. Why would you reject the sign of the covenant? He said it was that moment that he realised that the light went on and he thought, this is a little disciple. This little girl's not a pagan. She's not an unbeliever. She's exhorting me to pray even before I'm thinking of it. All of which is to say, baptism is a wonderful gift. It's a sign and it's a seal of everything that God has promised. It's a sign of his faith. And when used and practiced rightly, it gives glory to God. And I think it brings encouragement to his saints. Can I also say the opposite? When abused and done wrongly, it brings dishonor to God and discouragement to his people. But done rightly, it reassures those who have been baptized as children and it spurs us on as parents. God is more for your children than you are. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing that is. Well, I hope this morning that what I've said has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. I know some of us still might think differently. Can I encourage us just in closing, let's continue to open the scriptures and talk to one another, to humbly discuss what the word of God says. Let's use our differences as an opportunity to be gracious and grow in love. And may the Lord of heaven pour out his spirit upon us that we would honour him in all that we do and say. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for how it reveals to us your, your character and your love. And Father, we want to thank you for the gift of children. We want to thank you for your grace to us and to our families. And Lord, we pray for us this morning but even if we, I know, Lord, there'll be many of us that will think differently. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be loving to each other. Help us to listen, to understand where each other's coming from. But Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. That you would humble um, our prejudices and confirm our convictions. And Lord, we just want to really all thank you together in unity for your great love for us in Christ. We thank you that even while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, you sent Jesus to die for us. It is by grace that we have been saved. And Lord, for all of us, we pray that as we participate in the new covenant fulfilment of baptism and the Lord's Supper, that we will persevere to the end, that we wouldn't be like those whose bodies are scattered throughout the wilderness but that, Lord, we would say no to idolatry, to sexual immorality, to grumbling, to putting you to the test, and that, Lord, we would live for Jesus and that we would help young ones here to live for Jesus. We want to pray, Lord, for all of our young ones here this morning that there would never be a time where they don't know you and your love and that you would pour out the riches of your grace and truth 
that they would know you all the more deeply. And we ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on that note, I thought I'd do something makes sense now, doesn't it? Jux and Nicker, would you like to come down the front? We're going to put into practice what we just...